Almighty God, Creator, Justifier, Lord, You are the eternal Word. You overcame the darkness. You are the source of all light. You gave us the right to be children of God. You became flesh and dwelt among us. And we long to see your glory even this morning, full of grace and full of truth. Lord, we confess that our hearts and lives often make much of this creation, of even ourselves, of our want for pleasure, of our moral superiority over others whom we deem less worthy. We do not revel often in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is our greatest deception. We seldom long for and hope in the life which can come only through His name. Father, forgive us. Take us now to Your Word and cause us to find there the grace and truth necessary that we might set our hearts upon You to glory in your name, that we might believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life, eternal life, in his name. It is in his glorious and magnificent and sufficient name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, listen with me this morning as I read a few passages of Scripture. Uh, As we've been going through the last several weeks, uh, as we approach Christmas, we have been working and looking at um, specifically the person of Jesus Christ. And so as has been mentioned over the last couple of Sundays, um, this morning's message is going to be unlike what is similar or typical for us where we're taking a, a passage or a book and we're moving through it. We'll be doing that again uh, starting first of the year. But this morning, as we have done over the last couple of Sundays, we'll be looking specifically at a theme in in the Scriptures. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the Incarnation. And so we're going to be looking at several passages, but leave your Bibles there open to John 1. We'll be returning there over and over again. But as we start, I want to read some familiar passages. You can just listen to these because they have been, they've been often in your ears. And I want us to get a glimpse by the power of the Spirit of God. And this is the only way our hearts will be stirred this morning by these scriptures. Is if the Spirit of God comes and helps us see, may He do this, a glimpse of the glory of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen with me as the Word of God goes forward. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see here in this passage that with a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, hearts of even angels are motivated to glory in this one resplendent Savior that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ. Motivated with joy to worship Him as He ought to be worshipped. We hear of this in Luke chapter 2 in this passage. But going further, we see that Christ, Christ alone, is preeminent over all creation. Notice with me, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen, all things were created. How? Through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him, in Him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Listen, do you believe this? Do you believe this with, your, with all of your heart? 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself what? All things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of only one man. And that one man is the Lord Jesus Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's preeminent over all creation. He motivates worship, even among the angels. This one, their Lord Jesus Christ, is the chief end and aim of all of our lives. Every aspect of our life, every emotion, every ambition, every aim in our hearts. Listen, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, as manure in order that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Christ is our chief aim, our end in life. He is worth all the sufferings that is required in this life. Every agony and heartache, every ounce of loneliness and despair can be brought to the feet of our Savior and there will be no loss. No loss. Finally, a very familiar passage in the same book, the book of Philippians, as Paul declares, Christ is necessary as our great hope as each and every one of us will one day face death. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, to gut and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall not which yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. Does your heart say that? Has your heart said that before? And it may be far from that place this morning. When we speak of the incarnation of Christ, I hope even just these, this just, just a sampling of passages, just a few in our Bibles, helps us see that when we think and consider the incarnation, the, the glory of Jesus Christ, um, we are, we are, we're just dabbling in these things. It's incomprehensible, astonishing really, that we give ourselves to anything else, that we, that we have focused our attention on anything else around us. Bob Inc. once spoke of the incomprehensibility of this, the, the inability of us to be able to understand and to get our hands around this understanding of the incarnation. He says this, It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Created beings like us. He's making himself known. The almighty, holy God of heaven. Eternity in time. Immensity in space. Infinity in the finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. The all as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery, this mystery of the Incarnation cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. But mystery and self-contradiction are not synonymous. And you understand, we're not, we're not double-speaking here. We're not, we're not saying crazy, insane things. No, we're saying what the Scriptures tell us about who Christ is and how He understands Himself. Unicorns. Now, I got the attention at least of some of the girls in the room, the little ones anyway. Unicorns. We know that there are some among us, mostly, hopefully, the little girls in our church, who like unicorns. Uh, they have shirts with unicorns on them. 
They have coloring books with unicorns in them. And they have shows of these fantastic creatures that are, that are made of fantasy, right? Now, I'm not concerned about unicorns this morning, nor should you be. But I fear, I fear, listen, evaluate your own heart. I fear that the kind of faith that our little girls have, wishing and hoping with, with uh, blissful sentimentalism, a, a, a longing, they, they, they genuinely wish, hope, that there were unicorns, that there are, there's one somewhere here on earth. I fear, I fear that many of us in the substance of our faith have that kind of faith for Jesus. And I pray that the Lord will reveal that to you this morning because that is dangerous. That kind of wishful, blissful sentimentalism that wants something to be true, that our little girls believe in unicorns with, that kind of faith will fail us in the reality of life when struggles and difficulties come. And many of us, even here this morning, some of us who have grown up as Christians, grown up and, and lived many years as Christians, can, can articulate with the same kind of confusion of how unicorns work, with that same kind of confusion, you would articulate who Jesus Christ is, who is supposed to be your Savior and your Lord, the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things were created. Why is it? Why is it then that our hearts are so feeble? Many of us come here this morning weary and overwhelmed. The world has beat us up. Our thoughts so often are not what they should be. They're nowhere near the angels that were, that were reveling in the glory of Jesus Christ on that Christmas morning. Our worship is seldom as vibrant and stirred as it should be. Why? Because we do not have faith in the Jesus of the Scriptures. We have a unicorn kind of faith. In a Jesus that's very vague and mystical and, and unknowable to us. Your thoughts often are very common and ordinary, small, or maybe even indifferent about the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, you know that that kind of Jesus, that, that sentimental, vague, not clear understanding of who Jesus is in our hearts and minds, that will not hold up when we try to think through the heartbreaking tragedy of what's happening in a war, in a war that's over, over, the, over on the other side of the world between Ukraine and Russia, when you hear and see what's happening with families and individuals and people, your heart breaks. That sentimental, plastic, vague, not very clear Jesus will not bolster and hold us up in a world that we live in. The more I hear about, and I'm trying to keep up with, um, the country of Haiti, the destruction there, the pain and the sorrow, it makes me weep. I cry out to God, would you help these people? Would the gospel come? Would Jesus triumph in the hearts of these people that are so hopeless? Would your Jesus be able to sustain you if you were in these places? It wouldn't if it's unicorn-like. If it's wishful, blissful thinking. If it's a Jesus that you have kind of vaguely in your head that you kind of just point to and you have no real idea of who he is, that Jesus will not sustain you. That's not the Jesus of Colossians 1 that says he's preeminent. Heaven and earth Visible and invisible, all things bow to him in the creation that Christ is being spoken of here in Colossians 1. How about your sins? How many of you this morning, like me, your enemy, my enemy, Satan, the world, the flesh, has such sway in our lives? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like whenever sin wants to triumph... It just does. It doesn't, it doesn't even have any, any pushback from our hearts so often. 
We're at the whim of whatever temptation may come. We feel so vulnerable and overwhelmed. Brothers and sisters, you do know that only when we have a clear and crisp and powerful understanding of the resurrection of Christ and will the power of sin fall dead at our feet. When we begin understanding with crispness, crisp, with crisp thoughts and clarity, this Jesus that's being declared in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, that says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, a righteousness instead that depends, depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's when sin falls dead in our feet. That's when sin falls dead, when we know Jesus with that kind of clarity. And we have faith in him with that kind of surety. And we all, we all would like to ignore the fact that we all will face a day. We will all face the last hours of our life. And some of us may not be able to talk to one another. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll be able to interact with our friends and our family and our loved ones. But we may be in a place where we cannot communicate. And all we will have is the ability to turn our eyes to Jesus. And trust in him to sustain us. So that when we pass from this life into the next, we will say with Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. We will not be grasping for the things we want here on earth. We will see Jesus as sufficient. Or will we? Or will we? You see, brothers and sisters, I've taken some time at the beginning of this sermon for us to hopefully see that Christ is everything. That us knowing Him, not just vaguely, not just in a simplistic way, not just with wishful thinking, blissful thoughts, no, with a concrete, stable, sure faith that is rooted in a Christ that we know that's revealed to us in Scripture, that kind of Jesus will be the only kind of Jesus that will take us into our last hours and to give us this kind of hope. Many of us hope. Many of us wish. Many of us say, man, I hope, I hope things will work out for me. That's not the faith that we're called to. The faith that we're called to. And this is why we've been spending the last few Sundays drilling down, if you will, on an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. The substance of our faith needs more than just wishful, blissful thinking. The object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, needs more clarity in our hearts and in our minds so that we can be sure as we live in these difficult, difficult days. They will not be sustained. In fact, we will, we will wander around groping, moaning and wondering why in the world is the world in such despair and disarray if we're not fixing our heart, anchoring them upon the Lord Jesus Christ with a faith that he gives us by his spirit. John Owen, a 17th century Puritan, speaks of fixing our eyes on Christ and he says this, a steady spiritual view of the glory of Christ by faith will give us gracious revival from inward decays. Do you need that this morning? A gracious revival from inward decays. And he goes on and he says this, this steady spiritual view of the glory of Christ by faith will not only give us this grace, gracious revival from, from inward decays, but he goes on and he says, and fresh springs of grace for our latter days. Grace upon grace, right? Isn't that what John says here in John chapter 1? Grace upon grace. That's what we need this morning. And so this morning, our message is going to be very simple. I want us to look at the incarnate Jesus Christ. I want us to have a better ability to fix our eyes on Him. And so I want us to give, I want to give you this morning a framework to think about Jesus. Some of us, we just, we, we, we have vague thoughts and they're kind of scattered thoughts about Jesus in our heads. But, but if we have a, if we have a grid to, to think through, then it may give us a better ability to fix our eyes on Jesus with more clarity and surety. So this morning, this is what I want to give you. I want to give you a historic, biblical understanding of a grid, a framework for us to 
fix our thoughts, our thinking, our, our desires upon this one person, Jesus Christ. And this is how we're going to do this this morning. This is the points for the sermon this morning. This is the framework that I want us to begin thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can use this for the rest of your life into eternity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ as we can think about him and consider him. Here are the three points this morning. Point number one for our grid or framework. Point number one, Christ is one person. Christ is one person. Point number two, Christ has two natures. Christ has two natures. Point number three, Christ accomplishes three offices. Christ accomplishes three offices. Christ is one person. Christ has two natures. Christ accomplishes three offices. This is, again, a historic but also a biblical way that the church has looked at and reflected on and meditated on Christ throughout the centuries. And this morning, I want us to have this grid and this framework. I want to touch on each one of these points and and give this to us because um, this coming year, 2023, my desire is that we will be more faithful to not simply trust in Jesus in, in vague and abstract ways, but that we at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church will be more careful and that we, I am going to be more prayerful and specific in encouraging you to trust in Christ in very specific and precise ways. And that our faith can be rooted and grounded in something that's, that's, that has substance, that is weighty, that's worth our, worth our faith. And so as we move along this morning... I'm going to be looking at these three points, and I'm going to be using terms and phrases. I'm going to actually be reading from our confession and catechism and some older creeds because I want you to see how it's not just, it's not just uh, something we need to do today because of where we're at in our world and in our, in our, in our, in our nation, but instead, this is how God's people have been diligent and faithful to carefully and concisely think about Christ throughout the centuries. And and it's to our detriment that we don't do the same, that we're not as careful and precise in our thinking and talking about Christ. And so as I read these things, as I use these terms, I want you to be aware of them, the terms that I'm going to be using, but I also want you to hear some of these creeds and confessions so that you can hear how careful and clear they are, specifically as they speak of Christ. And how they are trying to articulate a Christ that is biblical, that comes out of many and hundreds of texts in our Bible. And so first, the first term I want us to uh, hear, and many of you have heard this before, but I want to mention it so that you'll be aware of it and at least know what, what it is if you ever hear it again. It is this, when we begin talking about the Incarnation, we're talking about a phrase that's historically been called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Now, the definition that I've pulled from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology says that the hypostatic union is this. In the incarnation of the Son of God, a human nature was inseparably united forever with the divine nature. In the one person of Jesus Christ, yet with the two natures remaining distinct, whole, unchanged, without mixture or confusion. Now, if you want a short definition here, hypostatic union, write this down. So that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. Hypostatic union means that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. Hypostatic union. Let's look together at point number one. Christ is one person. Christ is one person. We must affirm that Christ is one person, or to bring up that phrase again, he is one hypostasis. It's a weird word, isn't it? Right? But it's one that's helpful for us to be aware of. He is one person or one hypostasis. Another way of saying it, same thing, is he is called one subsistence. One subsistence. The clarity of this one person of Christ is set forward in the scriptures over and over again. 
But this morning we're looking at John chapter 1, so let's look there and notice how Christ is being spoken of as one person or hypostasis or subsistence, one being. Notice in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In our passage here it says, In the beginning was, notice, the Word. Do you see that? The Word. One. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness was not overcome, uh, has not overcome it. Verse 14, drop down if you will. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through this one person, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, much, much for us to think about there, isn't it? A lot of... A lot of important, significant things being said in this passage in John chapter 1. It requires a lot of thinking and rethinking. We we can't just pass over this. I believe in Jesus, whatever that means, and kind of keep moving. No, no. These things are being said to us to be a, a, a stabilizing for our faith so that we can be careful to understand these things and to be faithful to think through them carefully. It's important for us to affirm what this passage is saying about Jesus. And specifically, his relationship to the Trinity as one person of the three persons of the triune God. Our text here says that Jesus is the Word. You see that? That was from the beginning. That's interesting, isn't it? That idea of in the beginning was the Word. That speaks to Christ's divinity, doesn't it? Because none of us were in the beginning. No, no. This is, this is Christ and his, his deity is, is, is shining forward here. So he was, he was from the beginning, his divinity shining forth. And yet, Jesus is not the Father. That's clear here. It says, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So he, he was God, but he was with God. So Jesus is not the same person as the Father is. And Jesus is not the same person as the Spirit is. Jesus is a person of his own, a subsistence. The Father and the Spirit are both persons as well. And in John 1, we notice that Jesus, it says, the Word was with God. Different from the other persons of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God, it says. These are are pretty significant truths. And we can dismiss them and say, you know, I just want to believe in Jesus. That's 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 not, oh, this is just, ah, I, I just need to believe in Jesus. I'm telling you, we can't believe in unicorns. We can't go there. This passage is given to us because the faith of the saints are required to believe these things that we may have substance in our lives and to believe in a Jesus that is clearly thought through and that can be clung to in our desperate hour. We need to understand these things. And we're helped because we're so narrow in our thinking, our our ideas and our thoughts about Christ. Even as we read our Bibles, everything about 2023 is dumping in on this and we can't get outside of our world of thinking and how we understand things. And so we have a wonderful privilege as saints who live now in that we can ask the question, how can we best sort this out? How can we best understand this passage and so many others that seem so confusing and so many pieces? I'm not sure how to understand this. We have faithful saints of old who have asked the same question and who have thought carefully through these things and have written down a compiling of these thoughts and have said, this is how we're to understand all the different pieces from the passages in Scripture and how we're to understand this. So listen with me, if you will, from our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 2, on Christ the Mediator, and listen to the declaration of His personhood and how it relates to all other things. It's a long quote, 
Bear with me. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging us to, to lean in and to learn about our Savior. Listen, the Son of God. This is paragraph chapter 8, paragraph 2. Christ the Mediator. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made. Now, isn't it interesting? Doesn't that sound very familiar to Colossians chapter 1? These confessions aren't just kind of going out on a whim. No, no, they're using and folding in. They're very saturated in Scripture and they're bringing Scripture passages together. It goes on and it says, Who governs all things He has made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. Does that sound like Luke 2, right? It does. And so, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham, and David, according to the Scriptures. Now listen to this last part. Because this last part is going to transition us into point number two this morning. The last part of chapter 8, paragraph 2 of our confession says, So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures are inseparably joined together in one person. I'm going to explain this in a minute. Without conversion... Composition, confusion. Which person is very God and very man? Yet, one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus, the second person in the Holy Trinity, has come in the flesh and has dwelt among us, brothers and sisters. All the brightness of the glory of the Father is now with us through faith in the person of Jesus Christ, in the one person of Jesus Christ. We can know the Father and God Himself has come to dwell with humanity. This is what we sing when we sing, Christ by highest heaven adore, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us, In flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. These old hymns, these old hymns have have theology where people have thought through Christ much more carefully than so many of us have. And so, point number two, Christ has two natures. The end of this paragraph that I just read in our confession points us to some of the most common misunderstandings that Christians have had concerning the personhood of Christ throughout the centuries. And if it's common misunderstanding for those throughout the history of the church, there's no way we can make the same mistake. No, there's every possible way we're going to make that mistake. We're, we're already in the middle of it, right? And so if those through the centuries have made the mistake, then we can assume that we also will, and we're apt to make this mistake, to trip up in our thinking as well. And so our second point, Christ has two natures. Christ has two natures. Again, this is part of our grid, our framework. We need to understand first that Christ is one person. We need to fix that in our thinking. There's a lot more that can be said about that. I'm just touching the surface, giving us a grid, again, a framework for us to begin adding to and working on and working from. The second point this morning in our grid or framework is that Christ has two natures. And when Christ is affirmed as one person, the mistake is often made in history to misunderstand this very second point, and that is that even though he is one person, very important for us to acknowledge person, subsistence, right? He has two natures. We want to be very careful that we're using that terminology. There's two natures in the person of Christ. While affirming the one person of Christ, it is also very important for us to affirm that God, the incarnate Son, displays all the attributes of God in His divine nature. All that is God is in Christ. 
And second, and all the attributes of man in his human nature. Right? Here, our thinking can easily slip into wrong assumptions. And this is where I would encourage you, go back to the last two Sundays as Alex worked through these two natures of Christ, his humanity and his deity. He did a a great job of laying a foundation, helping us understand the importance of those things. I don't want to go there. I can't go there. He he did a great job in that. Re-listen to those things and think through the value and the importance of Christ's full deity and full humanity and consider those two natures separate in that way. This morning, though, I'm talking about these two natures in the one person of Christ and understanding this particular truth uniquely and specifically. These two natures should never then be confused or understood as changing in Jesus or divided or separated in any way. These are the ways that have been misunderstood throughout the centuries of the church. Some of the misunderstandings are to either confuse, to either confuse the two natures so that the divine and the human are so blended that you end up with a person that is neither fully human or fully divine. You end up in your thinking with a Jesus that's a hybrid of the two natures. He's kind of blended together. Some people say it's kind of like having a, a, a glass of, of, of clear water and then you take a, a drop of blue ink and you put it into that glass of, of clear water. Now you have neither blue ink nor clear water. You have this mixture of something that's, that's neither one of those things. Some have thought of Jesus in that way, and that is to confuse the two natures. This should not happen. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Why? Others may wrongly think that Jesus was divine, and then when he came to earth... He ceased or laid aside or did away with some of his divinity. So he's not as divine when he came here to earth because he, he took on humanity then. And while he's here on earth, he's, he gave himself, he showed himself to be human in every way. And we think of him as human. And now that he's gone back to heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father, he has set aside his humanity again and now he's more deity. He's back where he was and everything's great. And Jesus kind of moved out of one into the other, and he's moving back and forth. This is the changing of Jesus' natures, and this is false, erroneous. I dare say in either of these, it's amazing because we think of these are just kind of very careful things. But, um, but this is heresy. Um, heresy isn't just anything that we believe different. No, heresy is when you wrongly when you wrongly articulate the person and work of Christ as it's been historically delineated and affirmed throughout the history of the church. So these these misunderstandings are heresy. These are not a Jesus of the scriptures. Now, again, there are those who say that there are parts of Jesus that are divine. This is another misunderstanding. Uh, like the soul and the spirit and conscience in his mind. These are, these are div- divine aspects of Jesus. And then there's, there's other parts when he was here on earth that are human, like, like his hands and his, and his eyes and his feet, his heart. The, these things are, are his humanity. And he's made up of different parts, and these different parts are Christ. This is erroneous understanding as well. Finally, some mistakenly think that Jesus is two natures, and it actually constitutes two Distinct persons, you see, I've got two natures, but two persons, and that Jesus was really, really divine and really, really human, and he was really, really close to one another, but not, not one person. He was two distinct persons. And of course, this is wrong thinking. It messes up everything in way of salvation to our understanding of the Trinity. We too, if we're not careful, will also make some of the same mistakes that wrongly understand how the scriptures articulate the two natures of Christ in one person. I was walking, I walk in the park a few times a week, and uh, there are the Jehovah Witnesses that set up there on occasion. I have not yet engaged, but that'll end up happening before it's all over with. We were walking, I think I might have been by myself actually this particular week, and and uh, this lady walks by. She's not at the place, but I could tell. That I remember she was over there. She she walks by, and as she walks by me, she says, "Jesus loves you." I'm 
Okay, so what Jesus do you mean? What, can you articulate for me what you mean when you say love? And do you even know me? So that short sentence, I'm just, I'm just dissecting to pieces, trying to figure out what, what are you doing? Like, um, but there are so many that think that's evangelism. It's not. It's not. We've got to be far more careful. We, we're not, we don't live in a world where we can just make up ideas of what we think things should be, and, that, and then they're true. That's, that's the world that we're trying to come out of. That's the world that we, that we say is darkness. We believe what is true as scriptures reveal it to us. So these thoughts, these, this mixing of understanding of the natures of Jesus was so important. And it, and it, got, it, it became sideways so quickly that as early as 451, okay, that's a long time ago. As early as 451, the church had to come together and articulate with clarity how we are to understand the one person of Christ in the two natures. This is the Council of Chalcedon. You can look it up on the internet and find this. It's also called the symbol of Chalcedon. I want to read it to you because I want you to see as, as early as 451. Now, these people were trying to stay alive. They were running for their life. They were not able to meet in churches like we have. They didn't have the freedoms we have. There were all kinds of things that were horrendous in their life as they were trying to live and, and, and continue. And yet they felt it necessary to be precise and as clear as we see here about the person of Christ because this matters. This matters. Who Jesus is must be clear in our hearts and our minds. And the church knew that it would rise or fall depending on how we understand Jesus. And so the Council of Chalcedon, the symbol of Chalcedon in 451 articulated it this way, and I'll read, follow with me or listen with me. We then... Following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. You see what they're doing? They're taking the two natures. Perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body. Here's a word that I want you to... Stick in your head and look it up and think through it. Here's a term I want you to remember. Consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead. And consubstantial with us, according to manhood. In all things like us, without sin. Begotten before all ages, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary... The mother of God, according to the manhood and one and the same Christ, one and the same Christ. So he's bringing it together now, this one Christ, this one person, son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, one person, two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. You see the one person, one subsistence language here. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son, the only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself was, has taught us. And the creed, that's the Apostles' Creed, of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And that's it. That's the Council of Chalcedon. As a declaration, I would encourage you to take that, look at that, read through it, consider it. So why does this matter? Here's the main takeaway I want you to hear. Here's the main takeaway for us to understand as we reflect on the two natures of Christ in one person. <laughs> When we speak of Christ and when we mention his two natures, we must be very careful that when we speak of Christ, we speak of Christ and Christ alone in his person as being the one who actually acts or does things. We should not, and we should be careful, because strictly speaking, we should not speak of Christ's two natures, his humanity or his divinity, as doing things. Because they are his natures. They are his 
divinity and his humanity. Christ in his person does things. Now you're thinking, okay. Now you, you have that thought. I want you to hang on to that because I, I want to show you why this is important in just a minute. Let me bring some scriptures around this and help us understand this. These are passages that you can go and look at that I'm going to mention because all of us have heard of these. Mary gave birth to the person of Jesus. Right? He gave birth, she gave birth to the person of Jesus. Now, all of us, when we think of Mary holding a baby, this baby, in our minds, we automatically, naturally think humanity. There's nothing more human than this baby, right? She was holding God. Because she was holding the person of Jesus Christ. And in Christ is all deity and all humanity. You see how easy it is for us to veer off and begin dividing Jesus up and thinking of him in ways that are not helpful or faithful? His humanity was on display, true. But when she gave birth, she gave birth to God, the person, Jesus, Emmanuel, who is, as the scriptures say, God with us, according to Luke chapter 2. Second illustration from scripture. Do you remember Jesus when he went out on the boat with his disciples? And he was tired. An expression of his humanity. He slept in that boat. That's not what God does. He doesn't sleep. That's an expression of Jesus' humanity. He went to sleep in the bottom of this boat. And yet, he was stirred awake. And when he stood to his feet, he spoke to the storm. And the storm was stilled. That's a display or expression of his deity. People can't do that. Humanity can't do that. Christ was Christ the person in his full humanity and his full deity was sleeping in the bottom of that boat. And Christ in his full humanity and in his full deity as he spoke into the storm caused the storm to cease. Why? Because the person of Jesus Christ has both of these natures. And it is Christ in his person that does everything that he does. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was not his humanity that cried out, I thirst. It was not just his humanity that was bleeding there on the cross or breathed his last. It was God. And when he forgave the sins of all that and received the wrath of God upon his back that of, of all of those who placed their faith in him, that was not just his deity. He wasn't just this super deity at that point. No, he was man, fully and absolutely human. And when he said it is finished, that was a declaration of Jesus, fully God and fully man. Finally, Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. That sounds a lot like we would assume, yes, this is deity. He's, I mean, who else can do this? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is a divine expression. But we need to know that as Christ is at the right hand of the Father in his person, he is indeed absolutely and fully divine. But he is also fully and absolutely human. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father bodily. And when we are raised from the dead, we'll be raised bodily. And our bodies will be redeemed and brought before the very throne of God as Jesus is the first fruits of this. It's important for us to be careful and clear, to speak of Christ in his person doing all the things that he does. And in each case, we understand how very important it is to understand that in each case, in his person, he was fully, he's fully divine and fully human in all that he does. Now, take that concept and read John chapter 17 sometime in the next couple of weeks, maybe today or next day. John chapter 17 does not make sense. It is confusing and cannot be understood. It cannot be untangled unless... You have a firm and clear understanding of the one person of Christ, two natures, fully divine and fully human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. We need to understand 
But as we think, and as we revel, as we worship, as we glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we glorify one, one who is both fully and absolutely divine, truly divine, and truly human. So, let's close with point number three. And, uh, and land, and land this, this, uh, this framework here, this, this grid for us. We, we first have Christ as one person. Christ is one person. Point number two, Christ is two natures. We understand that he is two natures, but we always speak of him as, as acting and doing according to his one person. But he's always in these fully and absolutely and forever, these two natures. Finally, point number three, Christ accomplishes Three mediatorial offices. He accomplishes three offices, three mediatorial offices. Let me read again from our confession. Chapter 8, again, is on the person of Christ, Christ the mediator. And in paragraph 10, which is not in some of the other confessions, the Westminster Confession doesn't have this. The Baptists decided to add it, and I'm glad they did, bringing forward this understanding of Christ's offices and the importance of these as mediator. So notice, listen with me if you will. Chapter 8, paragraph 10 says this. This number, that is the three offices, and order of offices, that is prophet, priest, and king. That order, prophet, priest, and king. This number and order of offices is necessary. Now, how many of you knew that before you came in here this morning? It's important for us to understand this is not something that Shane's making up. It's new new book that I read. No, this is how the church has understood Christ and his offices throughout the centuries and how they've been careful to be able to think through what is Christ, how, how is it that he, he is mediator? What does that mean? Well, he's prophet, priest, and king. Listen to this. This number and order of offices is necessary for in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetic office. Because we don't know Christ. We have no ability to know our God. We have, we're blind, unable. We grope around. We imagine things about who God is. We're, we're very ignorant. We're unable to overcome our dullness concerning the things of God. So we stand in need of a prophetic office in Christ. And in respect of our alienation, first was our ignorance. Second is our alienation from God. And imperfection of the best of our services, the best things, the best prayers we can pray. We're alienated from God. We need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability, this is the third office, to return to God. We're averse to God. We're opposed to him. We have no ability to come to him in our own strength and our own ability to return to God. And for our rescue and security, do you need to be rescued and secure? Yes, we do. From the spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office. Now listen to what his kingly office does. It convinces us. It subdues us. It draws us, it upholds us, it delivers us, and it preserves us. Do you need a king? I need a king. And it says, he will convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. In other words, he will bring us all the way home. I don't know about you, but there are days that I wonder if I'm going to make it. And I'm so thankful that it isn't dependent upon my strength, but upon my king's strength. So, Christ is prophet. Think with me just a moment. I want to run through these pretty quickly. Christ is prophet. The preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. The unique prophet of the Old Testament. The one that is said at the end of Deuteronomy. And there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. There was none like Moses. And it goes on and says there's no other prophet. Think about it. All the prophets in the Old Testament, there was none as amazing as Moses that God spoke to face to face and that the Lord used to speak to God's people and to reveal to God's people who God is. And yet, in that same book, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. 
In other words, like Moses. Moses is telling the people of God, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. This greater prophet, this prophet that was promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this prophet that every prophet along the way, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi, all of these prophets, they looked to and they said, is this the one that's going to be the one that Moses promised that's the greater prophet? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say, Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You hear that? God did this in many ways in various times. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that is the days that we're living in right now, He has spoken to us by His Son. This is the greater prophet. Christ is the prophet that was promised in the Old Testament that has come. No matter how many times the prophets declared to the people, repent of your sin and turn, their hearts never did. They groped and wandered around. They never got it right. They didn't have enough prophets. There's no way they could have enough prophets to make it right. Even Moses, even Moses himself failed, but Christ never has. It says in our passage this morning in John chapter 1, it says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice here in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look with me at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, in other words, it reveals to everyone who God is, was coming into the world. This is Jesus coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. Why? Because we're blind. Unless we have the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, revealing Himself to us, we will remain blind. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, to who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it wasn't something that was inherited. There wasn't something in way of our ability and power to do. Nor by the will of man, but of God. Something that God did. So how will our rebel blind hearts, our minds, how our rebel, rebel blind thinking, our thoughts, how will they be triumphed over? They'll be triumphed over by the one true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ executes the office of prophet in that he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our, all of our salvation. Second, Christ is our priest. First, he's our prophet. We have to first, because the, the, the number and the order are important, so first we must come to know who this God is. We must know who we are in light of him. But second, Christ is our priest. We know in the Old Testament the first priest that led the way. And throughout the Old Testament, there were many, many priests to come. Aaron was the first of the priests, and then all the others. Imagine, think about in Exodus chapter 28, it speaks of Aaron and his brothers and all of those that were with him. They were given, it says, holy garments for Aaron and his brothers for glory and for beauty. All the splendor and majesty of what these these priests were wearing the tabernacle that Dale even read about this morning, the temple, I mean, and and how glorious it is. Imagine the thousands and thousands of gallons of blood that were spilt by the priests over and over again so that God's people could somehow have some ability to think they can come into the presence of a holy God and that God can dwell in their midst somehow, some way, because they couldn't live outside of who God is and what he has created to satisfy God's justice for our sin. And yet, none of those priests were able to do what the Lord Jesus Christ has done as our final and ultimate priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not just into the tabernacle or into the amazing temple. No, Jesus went into the very heavens, which is what the temple and the tabernacle was representing. Jesus, the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because if he was only God, he wouldn't be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he's also fully man. 
but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because the person of Jesus is fully God and fully man. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Come to Jesus, the prophet who is fully God and fully man, able to bring us to himself. He overcomes our corruption, our attempts of self-righteousness, our ability to try to do our best to please God. You and I have all done it this week. We try to do things that are pleasing to God. Hopefully he'll, he'll have some favor on me. We're trying to be our own priest. We're not trusting in the priest that Christ says he will be for us. How does Christ fulfill the, or execute the office of priest? Christ executes the office of priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Finally, Christ is not only prophet and priest, but he's also king. Christ is king. Imagine the preeminent king of the Old Testament, David himself. David himself was not able in all of his glory and strength and power and reign, he was not able to build the temple. As Dale read for us this morning, it took Solomon to build this temple. In all of his splendor and glory, even that temple did not bring people close to God. Solomon was indeed a glorious king, but if we remember, there weren't many after him that we can be proud of. Even Solomon himself failed in so many ways. There isn't enough prophets to make us know who God is. There will never be enough priests, no matter how many we try to bring into our lives, that can bring us near our God. And no matter how many people we want to reign over us and rule our country and make things better, they will never, they will never triumph over our hearts of sin. Our country will not be better with another president. Our country will be better when we bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All of these things showed themselves and proved themselves to be failures. And yet Jesus is the King of all kings. This is why the Christmas story is so beautiful and glorious. Because when the Gentile wise men came to see Jesus. They brought gifts that were respective of kings. But that isn't all they did. They didn't just come and declare that this one is the king that we've all been waiting for, that all of humanity has been waiting for. But they did something else. Listen, Matthew chapter 2. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, all kingly gifts, acknowledging this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As Paul himself said, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ executes his office as king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies for us. What is a credible profession of faith? Many of us have heard of that phrase. A credible profession of faith, a faith that we can affirm as a church and bring someone into membership in our church. A credible profession of faith means that this person understands what the gospel is. They've believed in the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. It means, second, that this person has a testimony that they have bowed to the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives and they've, by faith, trust Him as their Savior and Lord. In other words, they have received the priestly work of Christ. And then the third aspect of the credible profession of faith is that you have a life that is indicative or reflective of the gospel that you say you profess. In other words, you're living your life under the authority of King Jesus. In other words, 
what we need, brothers and sisters, what our greatest need is in all of our lives. We have all kinds of things that we think we need. Ultimately, we need a head that is submitted to the prophet of Christ. We need a heart that is bowing before the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need hands and feet that live in line with what Christ has called us to live in as our king. So I ask you this morning, where do you go? Where do you go to be informed? Do you go to the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you go to draw near to Jesus? Or to draw near in way of your emptiness of your own soul? Where do you go for protection and security? To find someone to reign over you and to tell you what, how you need to live? Where do you go? All of us have places we go. Our confession says, This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ. Only Christ can be our prophet, priest, and king who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or in part thereof transferred from him to any other. To any other. So the question I have is this. All of us are looking to places for these things. Are we looking to Jesus? Because the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And for those who have faith, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray together.